What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore but with him by the baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You know, in a vivid way, uh, this week, uh, we saw what can happen because of false accusations, right? Some boys from Covington Catholic in uh, Kentucky go to Washington to participate in the March for Life to give voice to the unborn and they soon found themselves with a bullseye painted on them and things got out of hand and got very ugly very quickly and as things progressed and unfolded during the week it was revealed that really all that reaction was because of a rush to judgment and false interpretations and false narratives and uh, false accusations have you ever faced false accusations before Uh, Maybe uh, in your job, in your ministry, in your family, perhaps, uh, you know, as a parent, you make a decision for the family, for your children. You know that this is the right thing to do for them and for the family, but they just don't understand. They misinterpret your motives and what you're doing and why you're doing it. And there's a backlash towards you and accusations come your way and it can be very unpleasant. Has that ever happened to you? Well, this is what's going on in verse 1. Essentially, this is why Paul is asking the question in verse 1 that he asks, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He knows that false ideas and that are derived from a, a wrong interpretation and understanding of what he's been teaching have been bubbling up in the minds of the readers of this apostle of this epistle and on the heels of that wrong understanding are going to come false accusations and so he asked this question he's been teaching so far that you know who we are as human beings and our sin nature and how we're born into this world and he he brought before them the the goodness and the grace of our heavenly father that is in jesus christ how that by his grace and through faith in him our sins are forgiven that we are justified with god but he understands people are going to misconstrue what he's saying they're going to go too far 
And so already in, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says there's slanderous comments that are being made. Uh, the, the accusations are there. People don't understand. And, and, and really what's going on is in chapter 5, verse 20, there's kind of a summary statement. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sins increased, grace abounded all the more. He's been teaching about salvation by grace and how we relate to God through grace and not by law and by our works, not through our own goodness and self-righteousness. And he understands there's just going to be an accusation. Well, if we relate to God through grace, what's our motivation to live a holy life? What's our motivation to obey him and to obey the law of God? And in fact, what you're saying, Paul, is that where sin is and our sin, the way God has dealt with us is through grace. And grace is something that we all want more of, right, church? We all want more God's grace. And if God's grace goes to where there is sin, if we want more grace, ergo, let's what? Sin more. So this is kind of the false idea, the false accusation. And of course, some are reacting to that, saying, no, that's not right. We can't just sin willy-nilly whenever we want. This, is a, this can't be what's going on with the gospel. Paul's gone too far. And listen, that was not only a problem back then. I've experienced it in my own pastorate. Every pastor has. I mean, just a few, I guess several years now, I found myself at a kitchen table with another elder talking to a wife, and this wife had been in an affair with another man and had decided that she was gonna leave her husband and her family and take up with this man who she had been cheating with. And as we exhorted her and we talked with her and we counseled with her and we brought her the truth of God's word, finally after about an hour, she just looked at us and said, well, really, let's, let's just be clear about this, right? Aren't all of my sins under the blood of Jesus? past, present, and future. So, so isn't it true then that I could go ahead and I can do this. I know it's wrong. I know it's not right. I know it's against what the Bible says, but God will forgive me later when I ask him right. He'll give me his grace. See, she was presuming upon God's grace, this attitude that I can go ahead and sin. I can do what I want because God will give me his grace. Paul responds to this Horrible idea in verse 2 with an expression. An expression that maybe in our language today, you know, it would be, you know, come on, man. <laughs> Absolutely not. Are you out of your head? You know, uh, J.B. Phillips is, uh, was an English theologian, and he created a translation that I often consult. And in a very English way, he said, what a ghastly idea. This idea in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, right? That first phrase. By no means. What a ghastly idea. And it is a ghastly idea to think that it is permissible or even desirable for a follower of Christ to sin, to willfully decide to reject what is right, and to support how abhorrent, how wrong-headed this idea is about God's grace, Paul brings in this passage, he puts forward a gospel truth that is, is profound and it has deep application for us this morning. It's that truth that because of our union in Christ, we have both the desire and the ability to serve God and not sin. 
This is where he's going with this entire passage, that this is who we are in Christ, and this is now our ability. Now, I will tell you something. This passage, these 14 verses, are some of the most rich, packed verses in the Bible. It's not an exaggeration to say that entire books of the Bible have been written about this passage, so of course we're going to get everything out of it in one sermon. Yeah. Uh, Friday, I was working on this, and Jonathan Kelly, our associate pastor, walked into my office, and I looked up at him, and I said, Jonathan, if in the future I ever decide to take Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, and do it in one sermon, I want you to beat me vociferously around the head and shoulders. You have that permission. It's such a rich passage. And so, kind of coming to it, though, this morning, I do want us to get the gist of what Paul is saying as it relates to this transforming grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to holiness. And so, uh, for those of you who like to, to take notes, by way of maybe a, an outline, a framework for the message, I want to give you three words. We're going to focus on three key words in this passage. The first word is no, no. K-N-O-W, no. The second word is consider, and the third word is present. No, consider, present. Let's start with no. Three times between verses three and nine, Paul employs the word no. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him. This is critical. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse nine, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. To, to understand how abhorrent the idea is to think that a Christian could love sin and want to sin more than to live for God, Paul says, you must know some basic things about the gospel. The first thing you have to know is you have to know that your old self is dead and there's no returning to who you were. We have to know that our old self is dead and there's no returning to who we used to be. He says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. What a ghastly idea. And here's the critical part. How can you, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know, Dr. James Boyce is a pastor at Tent Prez, just a, a wonderful pastor and preacher and scholar of God's Word. In his preaching through the book of Romans, he said about this phrase, verse 2, he thought that in his opinion, this was the most important verse in the New Testament for us evangelical Christians in our world today to understand if we were going to live a holy and a godly life. I, we've got our brother Randy Pope here with us this morning. He preached here about four years ago on this passage, and I remember him saying something along the lines of, this is the key 
to us as Christians experiencing the power of God and living a life that brings honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. And these two men are are reflecting what has come to the centuries about the importance of this phrase, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It introduces a theme, a theme of death. You see it several more times, right? In verse 3, we have been baptized into his death. Verse 5, we've been united with him in a death like his. In verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified, was killed with him. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to to God in Christ Jesus. It's obviously an important concept, isn't it? Repeated that many times. Died to sin, crucified with Christ. Those verbs, they're critical. In fact, even the tense of those verbs are critical. They're not present tense. You know, present tense means that it's something that's happened now and is is continuing on into the future. In the language of the Bible, it's the aorist tense, which means this was something that happened in the past, and it was completed right then and there. It's done. And that's important for us to get What's he saying about it? When he says, you have died in Christ, what is he saying? He's saying, your old self, that old self that was crucified with Christ, it is done. It's done. It's dead. It ceased to exist. You can't go back to that anymore if you have taken up the cross and you are following Jesus and you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot go back to that old self. It's dead. So what's the old self? Okay, That's critical to understand. What is the old self? This is all that we were before Christ came into our life in a glorious way. That person who we were, our love for sin, right? Our love of rebellion, our worship of self, our delight in doing what we wanted to do and serving ourselves and indulging ourselves. It's our contempt of God before Christ came in. It's our inability to not sin. It's our inability to do anything that is spiritually pleasing and good to God. It's this incapability, our inability to live for God. If you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, you're not following him, the truth of the scriptures is this. On your very best day of behavior, none of it pleases God. None of it brings any spiritual merit or blessing from God. You will never work your way into God's favor because in this old self, all we desire to do is live for self, worship self, And that manifests itself as sin. That old self cannot not sin. Can't help it. Does it every time. And so what he's saying is that if you are in Christ, if you've experienced this 
revival, this regeneration that comes through the Holy Spirit, you can never go back to that way of life. You can never interact with sin in that way again. Why? Because we are a new creation. And the new creation can't go back and become the old creation again. Our old self, it was crucified with Christ. And this leads us to what we must know, a second thing we must know. First, we have to know that we died to sin and there's no returning to who we once were. And secondly, we have to know that our new self finds its identity in our union with Jesus Christ. We have to know, you have to know that your new self finds its identity, it's completely based around this union with Jesus Christ. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Church, in those verses, what are the, what's the word that's repeated over and again and again? What's the word? Baptize, baptism. That's, that's critical, that's important. I, now, I can't go into all the, the you know, explanations and teachings on baptism. We'd be here for another week. So let me instead point to a story in the New Testament, an illustration that Paul gives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses one and two, he's talking about the Israelites. They're exodus from Egypt and they're following Moses. And you probably, many of you probably know the story. They're running for their lives. They come to the Red Sea where they're trapped and Moses, you know, he holds up the staff and the Red Seas are parted and the Israelites walk through on dry ground and there's these walls of water and, and they get to the other side and then comes the Egyptians and the water crash and they're, they're drowned and the Israelites move on to new life. And, and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, those Israelites in walking through the mist of the Red Sea were baptized into Moses. They were now with Moses. They had identified themselves with Moses. They had taken Moses' side. They were in solidarity with Moses. And because they had done this, they could never go back to Egypt as slaves and interact with Pharaoh the way they had before it's done. That life was dead. And now they're coming into the new land, right? This word baptism, baptism into Christ means that we are identified with him. We, we stand in solidarity, locked with Jesus. So, so when we were baptized, right? Before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's the baptism we're talking about here. The water baptism is simply a, an outward sign that points to the more important inner reality that every one of us must experience. When we surrender and we repent of our sins and we turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust in him for our salvation, the Bible says that we at that point are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where he comes and he takes up residence in our life and he empowers us and begins to change us, before our baptism in the Holy Spirit at salvation, we were identified with the first Adam our human ancestor. And that's who we were in solidarity with. And that first Adam, he represents in the Bible what? Sin, fallenness and sin. 
But with this uniting to Jesus Christ, now we're identified not with the first Adam, but we're identified with the second Adam, Jesus, which brings us a new self, a new self, because the old self is dead. Now, in our, in our union with Jesus, God has done something amazing. He has decreed that Jesus' life, because we're identified with Jesus, we're in solidarity with Jesus, Jesus' life is now our life. Jesus' death, because we are following Jesus and identifying with Jesus, his death is our death. His burial is our burial. His righteousness is our righteousness. And God has decreed this to be true for us out of his grace. Listen, this is such an important truth that Paul, he repeats it to his other churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, we spent a lot of time in 2 Corinthians 5 earlier in the years. We talked about being ambassadors for Christ. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Now, church, read the last verse of words with me. Therefore, all have died. You see, we're identified with Jesus. We're identified with his death. He says to the Galatians, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A couple of cha- in the next chapter in Galatians 3, verse 27, he puts it in an even more interesting way. For as many as you who have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You see, something happens to that act of the Holy Spirit when he unites us with Jesus Christ, he gives us a new heart, a new self, a new nature that loves God, who wants to serve God, who wants to live for God's glory. Something amazing and mysterious happens. We're joined to him. We're identified with him. So much so that it's like Paul says, you have put on a completely new skin. And that skin looks exactly like Jesus Christ. You've put on Jesus like you put on a new set of clothes that you wear, a new uniform that changes how people know you. Church, we, we have to know that our old self is dead and you can never go back to who you once were. And we have to know that your new self finds its identity in this union with Jesus Christ. There's a third thing you gotta know. You have to know that your new self comes with a new nature, so victory over sinful desires and temptations is now possible. This new self comes with a new nature so you can have victory over sin. And this takes us back to the whole accusation, right? We experience God's grace so we can sin. And he says, no, don't you know you have this new self and this identity that is in Jesus Christ. And with this new self comes a new nature that finds sin to be abhorrent. Verse five, for if we have been united This is a farming word, an agricultural word. It's the idea of taking two different plants and grafting them together so that they become something that is unified and new. 
For if we've been grafted together with Jesus Christ, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, right, this person that we were before Christ did his redeeming work, the person that we used to be, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Why were we crucified? Here's the answer. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The old self. If you're here and you don't follow Christ this morning, you're not really free. The only freedom you have, the only ability you have is to sin. That's what you can do. Our freedom is only as good as our ability. And if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus Christ and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says your life, the reason why you are where you are is because you are enslaved to sin. And your only hope, your only hope is to turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him, to receive him as your Lord and Savior. The old self is in bondage to sin, a slave to sin, but this isn't true for those of us who are united in Christ, right? We're no longer under the, the dominion of sin. No longer under that slavery. Before in our old self, we were not able to not sin. But now we are capable of saying no to the temptations and the desires of that sin nature that we were born with. We have the power to say yes to righteousness and godliness and to glorify God. We have a new nature, and that new nature abhors the sin nature that our old self was completely incapable of saying no to, that was in bondage to. But our new nature in Christ, with the Holy Spirit who now lives within us, we abhor that nature. We abhor that aspect. Now, doesn't mean we won't sin. We still sin. We're a new person, a new person in Christ, but we do have a sin nature. That sin nature is no longer in charge. It's been a dethroned king in our life. Now, we may sin, but here's the difference. We're going to respond to that sin much differently now in our new self than we did with the old self. And the old self, we'd sin, and you'd do things, and you go, oh, let's try to see if we can't do that again. Right? And the new self... When you sin, and there may even be some pleasure in it, because the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But after a bit, what do you find? You find that your response to that sin is this conviction from this new person, this Holy Spirit that now lives inside of us. There's conviction. There's a, there's a regret and a repentance that says, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. That's ridiculous. What was I thinking? Let's grow up. Live for God. I don't want that in my life ever again. Completely different response. Why do you respond that way? Because you're a different person now. You're a new self. And and let me illustrate it like this what's going on here. Um, Ladies, especially those of you who are married or you've had men in your life for any length of time, have you ever noticed that when guys get together in a group, 
and we don't think we're being watched, right? Have you ever noticed that a group of guys that get together inevitably seem to regress to their college years? You ever notice that? I mean, you can get guys who are in their 30s and you'd swear they're 18 years old by listening to them, right? Or even guys who are in their 40s and 50s, you give us enough time on the golf course. I mean, if you're, you know it, it sounds like we're back in the fraternity again. And we're cutting up and goofing and everything else. You know, and, and, and ladies, what do you do when that happens? I know what you do, because I've seen my wife do it to me, right? Just last week. <laughs> she, she, she gives me the eye roll. And uh, maybe the, right? What is she saying? She's saying, look, this is not who you are, okay? You may look like you're in your 20s, but you're not anymore. Okay, you don't look like it either. But anyway, right? And in fact, isn't it kind of a little, ladies, it's it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it, ladies? And sometimes you even tell us, when are you going to grow up, right? When are you going to grow up? That's just, stop that. That's just silly. Guys, does this sound familiar? Right? Yeah. And you know what happens to us guys? Here's what happens. As we get older and older, that regression back to boyhood becomes less and less. Why? Because we mature. We realize, you know, what? <laughs> that's not who I am. That is not, I mean, that's just, that's just kind of pathetic, actually, to do this. Right? This is not who I am. I am not a college kid anymore. I can't talk like that. I can't wear skinny jeans anymore. I mean, you go down the list. This is not who I am. Let's just stop. Just stop. Right? And wives, if your husband hasn't done that yet, you can poke him right now, okay? Because it's just kind of pathetic, isn't it? But you see, that's what happens in our spiritual life. Our new self, as we mature and we grow an understanding of who we are in Christ, yeah, can we go back and do something foolish and sinful that our old self would do? Yeah, but our response, then that's just pathetic. What What is going on? That's just not right, right? This is because of how God changes us. The vast majority of this text, right, the vast majority of this text, is centered on the word no. But beginning in verse 11, Paul shifts. He begins to explain how we're to respond to what we know. How does what we know become practical? How does it apply to our daily lives? How do we get power in order to live a godly life and a holy life instead of sin? You know, what's interesting here is for the first time in the book of Romans, not the first five chapters, not the first part of chapter six. For the first time in the book of Romans, Paul tells us to do something. He tells us to do something. He gives us an imperative, an exhortation to do something, to take action. He's been laying the groundwork from the beginning of chapter one to now of who we are in Christ. Now respond. And that brings us to our second word, consider. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That word consider, it comes from the Greek word logizomai. And logizomai has come into our English language in various ways. So for example, you may keep a log or a register, right, in your checkbook or on a trip. 
uh, logistics, or how about logarithms? Uh, the most uh, known word is logic or logical. All these words come from logizomai. Uh, it's translated as to credit, to take into account, to count. I like the King James. I was raised in the King James. It was to reckon. You know, at the end of every, week, every month, what did you, you, at least when we used to have checkbooks, what do we do, right? We would take our church and we would reconcile our checkbook. You know, what we had written down in the log, we would reconcile it with our bank statement because the bank statement was reality and we wanted to make sure that they were in harmony, right? And, and that's fitting because this word, it's an accounting word. It's a business word, a, a word of commerce. It literally means to credit something to someone as something. Now, if you scratch your head at that, let me repeat it, then I'll explain it. To credit some, something to someone as something. So, God in his grace, as we are united with Christ, he counts Jesus' righteousness to us as righteousness, right? He imputes Jesus' righteousness to our account. He considers it as if we ourselves are righteous like Jesus. He takes the life of Jesus and he considers it to be our life and counts it as our life. And his death for sin and the punishment of sin, he counts that death as if it is our death because we are united in Jesus Christ. And he says, since you know that you have died to sin, count on it. Count on it. Act on it. Because it's true. Church, your emotions, uh, all the voices that come from our culture, the wounds that you may have in your life, they, they oftentimes scream and shout and say things about you. But what is true and what is real and what is right is what God has said about you. That's reality. That's truth. And he says, so consider it, count it to be true. It isn't enough to intellectually know this. Isn't it enough to do for you to intellectually accept some facts about what God says about us in Jesus Christ? His point here is we must believe it to be true and then act on it. Faith. See, we're saved by grace through faith in church. We are sanctified by God's grace through faith. We have to believe it and act on it as if it's true. It is truth that is acknowledged. It is truth that it is then appropriated. And here's the thing. The tense of the verb is again important. It's present tense here. We are to continually, throughout the day, throughout our life, we are to consider this to be true and act on it. Verses 2 to 10 they summarize the gospel. And now Paul is saying to us, listen, preach this to yourself continually. Believe that you are dead to sin and alive to God and act on it. And act on it. Preach this to yourself regularly. When you doubt, preach it. Meditate on it. Consider it to be true because it is true. And then act on it. So what's the action that we take? 
What do we do in response to who we are? And church is always important that we keep that order in place. We always live out because of who we are. We always do because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We've got to keep that order in place or you'll not experience transforming grace. What do we do? That's our third word, present. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Listen, our sinful nature that so dominated our old self and enslaved us it no longer has power over us. It no longer controls us. It is no longer our master, but it's still there. And how does it most often reveal itself? It reveals itself most often through our bodies. Uh, we, we learned this when we were children, those of us who've been raised in church, and we sing little songs in children's church, right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Right? And then we would go to be careful, little hands, what you do. And be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little ears, where you hear. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. I love that part. It's not hatred and condemnation and judgment. So be careful, little mouth what you say. It isn't that our eyes or our ears or our mouth or our hands or our feet are inherently evil. It just means that the normal experience of sin that we have comes through our body. It becomes that conduit that the experience of sin takes place. For example, God, God gives us hormones and glands, right? And those hormones and glands, they fire off at a certain point in our life, and boy, I like what I see, and we pursue, and we marry, and those glands and those hormones, they make uh, a marital intimacy possible and pleasurable. But what happens when those glands fire off at other times? Sin and then sinful nature will inject itself and turn something that is meant to be good and godly and holy and tempt us into something that is immoral and illicit. So the manifestation of sin is most often experienced through the members of our body. And so in response to this truth and to God's grace in joining us to Christ, Paul says, do something about it. Present yourself, surrender yourself in totality to the Lord Jesus Christ for his honor and glory. Have you ever done that? He's really here talking about a decisive act. Just as you trusted in Christ to be your Lord and Savior, now, now present, give him your life, the totality of your being, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your children, your job, your career, your resources, everything. Give it to him. Surrender it to him, right? And this act of surrender Christian, have you ever thought about that? Of realizing you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Let me give myself and offer myself up to God. And that leads to a, a reenactment on a daily, regular basis. 
You know, a, a few weeks ago, uh, Randy, when he brought the message from First Peter about our role as priest in the church of God, he gave us hand motions. Remember that? Right? There's, I saw a lot of this this morning with the worship. It was beautiful. We lift our hands to God in worship. We give him our worship, right? And, we, and our hand out where we're serving people. And then, of course, there's the hand that everybody hates, the hand on the wallet, right? Where we give our, our resources. But you, do you remember the hand motion that he said he starts it all off? It's this, right? Where to God we go with this. What does that look like in real time? It means that when you're at work or you're talking to a family member or a, a neighbor and things have blown up and you're being falsely accused, for example, there's a part, that sin, you know what that sin nature does? That sin nature says, you don't have to take this. Who does this person think they are? Well, I'll let them know. And, and you're tempted to what? Ball them out, bless them out, maybe cuss them out, depending upon what part of the country you're from. And there's this temptation to use the mouth to sin and destroy. But in that moment, when we recognize that I belong to God, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, at that moment, we can pray to the Holy Spirit and we can say, Lord, I don't want to say the words that will bring shame on your name. I want to say words that build up. I want to say words that help this person. But I know I can't do this on my own. Help me. Give me the grace, the power that I need. This, moment by moment, presenting ourselves to Jesus, recognizing our dependence upon him, and believing that when we come to him asking for power and grace, he's always there to give it and acting on that. You know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his works on the book of Romans, he, he was a pastor in England and a theologian. His, his work on the book of Romans and his sermons are, are almost mandatory nowadays to read or listen to. And, and he says this, I want us to consider it as we close. What is the business of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? No, it's to deliver us from the bondage and the reign of sin and to put us under the reign of grace. The practical experience, the, the everyday experience of this reign of grace, church, it occurs when we know who we are in Christ, when we continually preach this to ourselves and we believe it and then we offer ourselves up to our Lord for his honor and for his glory. May that be our testimony this week. Lord Jesus, truly our spirit is willing because of this new self, but our flesh is weak. And we will oftentimes listen to that dethroned master, the one that has no, no control over us anymore, but his voice is loud and like Pavlov's dogs, we just snap to it when we hear that voice. Oh, Lord Jesus, this week, in your people here at Covenant, would you give us the, the grace that we need to keep this truth of who we are in you ever in the front of our minds? May we meditate upon it in the moments of stress and emotional anxiety. May we turn to it. May we accept it. May we respond in each of these situations in a way that brings glory to your name and not shame.
We want to be a holy people, Lord Jesus, so that when people look at us who do not know you, they're fascinated by the beauty of who you are. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.